All right, here we are. This is Christmas time. God has given me a, uh, two sermons that go totally together to bring home something in such a powerful way. And the interesting thing is, it's something that really has been, if you were to look at the, our year, now that we're at the end of it, if you were to look at what he was trying to say this year, this has been the thing. It started way back then with me kissing Hayden's feet. And it has gotten stronger and stronger through the year until by the time we get into the fall, all of a sudden, this thing about God and who he really is. I, I remember Peter Lord saying something a long time ago. He was a fairly famous pastor in Cape Canaveral. He wrote the book that, How Can I Fly Like an Eagle When I'm Stuck Here with These Turkeys? Okay? And it was about being humble. And it was an incredible book. And what I asked him at the end of his, towards the end of his ministry, he's still alive, but towards the end of his formal ministry, I said, what would you do differently? And what he said was, is he said, 52 weeks a year, I prepared people and did everything I could to get them to do something, something different. So they had, I was giving them 52 different things to do essentially every year. And he said, nobody can do 52 things. So they end up not doing any of them. He said, if I had to do it over again, it'd be really simple. I would do the same thing. I'd figure out a way to keep it fresh. I would keep it new. I would keep it, but I would keep going at the same thing over and over and over again until people really started owning it. And when they did and they really had it, then I would move to the next thing. Now, I think that God has done that. As we've let him preach here, if we, as we let him lead us, not just me, but the people who have guest preached and so on, the, I think he's been taking us on exactly that path in this thing. Years ago, I used to say this all the time. I used to say the, the, the most important thing that is missing from Christians' lives is that they don't really know who they are in Christ. I, and I said it all the time. And I would say, and I think I was, a lot of people would echo that. that you know, and the idea is that God has made us new. He has put a new nature in us. He has empowered us. He is doing things in us that are so magnificent and fantastic and overflowing that if we really knew who we were, what we would be was unbelievable, and what we are compared to what we could be in Christ and are in Christ, just not manifesting is all, is there's just such a huge gulf and that that's really important to bridge. Now that's what I said. This year God has caused me to realize that there's yet another step underneath that. It's not just realizing who we are, it's realizing who we are. Because you see, not only are we not entering into the fullness that God has for us. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're not just appropriating what's available, we're actually still stuck in mud. Even as Christians. We don't see it. Because he's changed us so much, because we've come so far out of the mud, that we don't understand the degree to which we're still there. But this year there's been these, these two things that totally go together which is God has just been showing me over and over and over. The closer, the more I've got to the second revelation, which I'm about to share, the more I've realized who I really am. What I actually am. The contrast between that, not just the empowered life, but still stuck in things and still over here. The more that I have realized how much I am not obedient, I've realized how much I'm really not obedient. The more that I've been willing to look at the ways in which I do not actually follow him, I have been astounded to find that I don't follow him. It feels like now, and can I say something? If you bell curve this about who's following God in this building right now, I think, I think this whole church, I'm not just being fanciful, I mean this seriously, I think this whole church exists pretty much far to the right of that bell curve. But I think I exist pretty far out there. And the fact of the matter is what God's been showing me all year is, is you don't trust me with anything. <laughs> now, the truth is I do. I trust him with a whole bunch of things. You get the drift? But I'm just seeing it, and here's what's really happening. The reason why I'm seeing who I actually am is because he's starting to, me to, he's starting to show me who he actually is. <laughs> and as I'm starting to see who he actually is, Versus what I thought it would be. And I've always thought of him as being infinite and thus finite, so I only had a small sliver and so on. But as he's been pulling back the curtain, so to speak, so that I could see more, the things that I have been seeing have been so magnificent, so rich, so full, so unbelievable, that I'm, 
extremely conscious of how far away from that I am. If I had to liken it to something, it would be like this. This is God on the right-hand side, who he is. And there is this dam. <laughs> and there's water coming out, quite a lot of water, in fact. But there is, oh, so much more. And I think what God is trying to do this year is I think he's trying to take, you know, those big cranks that you do, you know, the big round. And I think what he's trying to do is I think he's trying to get us to start cranking. And he's actually starting to get, he's starting to say, I want you to know. I want you to release. I want you to experience me. <laughs> In overwhelming, mind-boggling, completely transforming. Look at as this water hits the other water. That's like him coming into our life. And look what it's doing. It's just destroying what was there. And creating something brand new. You see it? that that's what I think God's going to do in this one-two punch of this Christmas season so that's pretty cool huh so if you're into that let's pray for it who's our prayer I can't read it oh Brian Boyer awesome thank you this is this is great uh, these guys are part of we're part of our small group last year this is a wonderful couple. I really could not recommend more highly that you get to know them. Really just loving and gracious and wonderful all the way around. So, Brian, you got to stand up. you got to pray for us. Lift up another church, too. Good morning. Uh, I just want to pray that we uh, have fertile hearts today and that we receive the word um, that God wants us to hear and so that it bears good fruit. And uh, I want to pray for and uh, give thanks to uh, Antioch Bible Church. Uh, it's really hard to lose a, a great leader like Pastor Hutch, but God, you've shown uh, good counsel in that church, and, and uh, it is still growing. And I just want to give thanks, and I want to pray for that church. Amen. Did Hutch just pass away? Did I miss that? I thought it... he passed away like I think a year ago. Oh, that's what I thought. Okay, all of a sudden I went, did I miss something? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, though. Yeah. Hutch was a, a fantastic guy. You're absolutely right. Okay. Even as Christians, in fact, theologians are want to do a silly thing. Theologians are want to do many, many silly things. But they, they're, they do this thing where they say, really in the Bible, there's like two different gods being revealed. At the very least, two different sides of God. Because the Old Testament, we all, they say it as if we all know this. But, you know, the Old Testament is the mad God, the angry God. The you, you've been bad, and he's mad, and you know what I mean? He, it's, just, it's just lucky that we got out of the Old Testament period, right? Without him just destroying a lot of us. Because he was mad and upset and destroying and angry and vengeful and jealous and all the things. And, and you know, the Old Testament is the bad side, the, the mad side of God, right? And then when we get to the New Testament, what we see is the touchy-feely loving God. You know what I mean? Flowers in the gun and... You know, he's just loving everybody, and he's just huggy and lovey, and that's it, right? And they say, that's two totally different sides of God. Now, let me make it clear. That's just nonsense. The God of the old is the God of the new. Jesus Christ, God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And that's just absolutely true. So the problem is that when we look at the Old Testament, we're actually misunderstanding it. We're misunderstanding what happens. And here's, if we had to sum it up, it would be something like this. When we look at the Old Testament wrongly, we think of the Old Testament as being God doing a whole bunch of stuff. And certainly he does a whole bunch of stuff, right? But we think that God is sort of the prime mover in the Old Testament. And that's wrong. The prime mover in the Old Testament is us. The Old Testament clearly reveals God massively. But what it does is, is it's, it's about us and God. But we're really the prime mover. Now, if you don't agree with that, it's okay. By the end of the sermon, I think you'll be fine with it. Okay, what I'm saying. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to do something that some of you have seen at least in some fashion before. But I'm doing it to a different purpose today. So would you do me a favor and really hang in there? Because if you really catch what we're doing, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament kind of a high flyover so that we can catch the major moves and why they're happening. Because when we see that, we're going to start to see this dynamic that I'm talking about. And here's the key. We're going to learn what God was trying to teach us in the old. 
Not that he's mad and angry and we're screw-ups. Something very different than that. So it starts with, of course, the garden. See, there's a movement going here to the right. And in the garden, what we have is, now that's kind of small, so you may not be able to see it, so I just want you to see what I'm doing. We're going to be building from there, but I'm going to bring out a bigger version of that. You see that? That's just the same thing. And each time you see the bigger one, just look at the bigger one, but you'll see it correlates with the other one. Do you see that? Okay. Now, what we have in the garden is what God wanted to do. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personhoods that are so in love, so connected, so in unity, so one with one another that it is love. It is the manifestation of love. When, when the scripture says God is love, that's not an abstract statement. God does love. It's saying God is the express manifestation of love in that three personhoods are completely melded into one because of love. See it? Now, what all of creation is, is God simply making more to be one with. Right? He made more to be one with him. Father, Jesus says in his last prayer, make them one as you and I are one. Them and us, us and them, this is what it's about. See what I mean? So this is what it's all about. And we see it in the garden. Where, what, what are they doing in the garden? They're enjoying one another's company, right? God made them to be with them and to be one with them. And that's what they're working on. That's what they're accomplishing. That's what they're moving towards. But here's the key. This, by the way, I'm just going to say this. I, I, I kind of, I'm always hesitant to do things like this, but reform theology or post-reformation theology and so on, just understand something. This idea that God is sovereign, God is truly fantastically sovereign. But the paradox is, reform will say that free will is an illusion. We have the very definite sense of free will, but it's not real. That's just nonsense. That's bad theology. The free will is real. And God's put it in the garden. The, the truth is God is completely sovereign and we have real free will. That's the paradox and they're both true. So the point is, is what we've got is, we've got real free will in the garden and that God said this, you may eat of every tree in the garden. So what's he saying? You can eat of every tree, right? But don't eat, meaning don't choose to eat. Use your free will to not eat of that tree because in the day that you do, you will be separated from me. Now, technically, what he says is you will die. And what he means by that is, is he is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He is life. And we need to be connected to him continually to be alive. And so what happens is, is that we're connected to him, and he is life. And when we choose to go our own way, we're separating ourselves from that. And it, it just is a nonsensical way, but a way of illustrating. It's like you've got enough reserve of life to last another 60 years or so. And then that runs out and you die. You know, that's not true, but you get it, right? So, that, so when he says you'll die, that's what he's talking about. He's not ultimately talking about the fact that you're going to die. He's talking about you're going to be separated from me, and that's death, the real death, the bigger death. So what's happening is, is what we've got is, is he doesn't force us. He gives us free will, but what do we do? He's saying you may eat free will, but don't, don't choose to, and what do we do? We go our own way. That's called sin. If you ever want to know what sin means, for those of you who haven't heard me say it before, sin is simply us choosing to go our way, not God's. God has a flood for us, and we choose to walk out of the river. See it? So, that's what the garden is all about. We choose to go our own way. Now, understand this. The rest of the Bible, that's chapter 1, 2, and 3. The, all the rest of the Bible, all the rest of human history is about one thing. It sums up in one thing, getting back to oneness with him. That's what all the rest of history is about, getting back to oneness with him. In fact, and in truth, a oneness that's better than the garden ever was. In fact, if you really get it, better than the garden could have ever been. Now, does that mean that God wanted us to sin or meant us to sin? No. It was real free will. But you understand something is, is that what he's done throughout the whole of human history is to bring us into a oneness that's better than could have ever been. Now, you may want to argue with that, leave me on that. That's fine. I'd be happy to. I don't care. Okay? It's not important for today. What is important is to understand that everything that happens from here on out is God trying to do something. Bring us back to him. See that? Now, the way he does it is this. He says, if you chose to go your own way, okay. I'm going to let you try and go your own way 
in any way that you could imagine doing that. So the first thing that he does is he says, no direct interaction. For thousands of years, from the garden until Abraham, we have thousands of years of history. And what's going on, it is no direct interaction. And the question being asked is this. Will we get back to God? Because that's the ultimate question. You can say, well, God could just make us and leave us alone, and then we would just live our lives and die, and what the heck, what's the difference? But that's not why God made us. Why did he make us? To be one with us. For us to experience something much more than what we ever have understood is even there. He wants us to experience this incredible thing, and his heart is to do that, and that's why he made us. And so what he's doing is, he's letting us go our own way, and he's showing us something. We never actually do get back to him. Going our own way doesn't lead to him. It leads further and further away from him. And so what happens, as we see in the Bible, is we get to a place to where now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The whole earth was filled with violence. What's that mean? What were people supposed to do? I want you to take dominion over the earth. Why? Because when you spread out and take dominion over the earth, you start finding that you come into places of need, right? How am I going to survive? Oh, God, help me. God shows you what's resident in his creation. You then marshal it together. You make fire. You hunt. And you make a tool. And you do these things. And you discover all of this stuff that God has in there. And you get to places of thanksgiving and worship. That's what his intent was. But what do we do? You have a piece of ground, and I want your ground. So I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to kill you so that I can have your ground. And now that i got a bunch of ground, I need a slave, so I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make you slaves, and then I'm going to take you, and now all of a sudden somebody else says, I'm afraid of getting taken, so I'm going to take somebody else's land and take some other people, and everybody's just doing what? They're fighting over the same plot. <laughs> they're, they're filled with violence. They're killing each other. point that the mankind is not prospering, it's actually the population levels are staying pretty low because <laughs> they keep killing everybody, even though we tend to last a long time. So what happens is the earth is corrupt in God's sight. The earth is filled with violence. And what he does, of course, is, is that he then says, okay, now do you see after thousands of years, you're not going to get back to me on your own. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe the slate clean, the flood. And we're going to start over again. Now, I don't know if I got the order right. What do we do? We say, let's build a tower <laughs> so that we don't get drowned again. Let's build a tower so that we're safe. Let's make a name for ourselves. Do you see this? Do you see the us in this? It's me. Me, me, me. I want to do this. I want to make a name so that God can't take me over. I want to see what I mean? This is our protection. This is our name. So what we're doing is, and again, order, but okay, but the point is, is what we're doing is, is that we're revealing yet again the way that we just keep doing this. So then what happens is, is God says, okay, now that you've tried it on your own, it's not working, I've dispersed you around the earth by confusing your languages, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reestablish a relationship with one person. Now come up here for just one second. This is, this is a man who's soon to leave us. But you're going to hear a lot about him when he goes out because this is an, a, an amazing young man. And his sister is incredible too. The family is just remarkable. But the bottom line is, is this is a young man who's going to go far. And he's going to do all kinds of things. Now, the point is, is what God is doing is he's saying, look, you've all chosen. You're still going your own way. You're still doing whatever you're doing. But I'm trying to show you. you I let you try it all, all you could on your own. But now what I want to do is I'm going to reestablish a relationship with one person and have everybody watch this. Have everybody see that there's this young man who's doing pretty well. So what he does is he calls Abraham, Abram at that time, out of Ur, and he walks him over into this other country, this other land. And he gives him this land. He says, all of this is going to be yours. Right? This is where you and I are going to interact, and the world is going to be able to watch what, who I am, who mankind is, and who I am as we interact in this spot, essentially. See that? So that's what we've got going on. Thank you very much. Okay? Now, the problem is this. 
if God just gives you a bunch of land, of course you're going to worship him, right? Like you really like the person who gives you a house, <laughs> right? And you tend to think that they're wonderful. So Satan comes along to God in the earliest book written in the Bible, and Satan says to the Lord, does Job, God says, hey, have you seen Job? This is an upright man. Have you seen this good man? And Satan says, yeah, right. Does he fear you? Does he worship you? Does he serve you for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands. This guy is getting rich. Why wouldn't he worship you? It would be stupid not to. You've increased his land. Stretch out your hand and take everything he owns. Strike everything he owns. Let it be taken in a bad, horrible way. And he'll curse you to your face. See it? You see, now this is the problem. It's the same problem he's dealing with with Abraham. Does Abraham worship him because he's given him lots of cattle, sheep, and family? Sheep and family, not cattle at that point. But is that why Abraham worships him, or does he worship him for his own thing? Well, this is what God proves in Job. What Job says is, what the whole key to Job is, there are many people, and if Oza's here, we talked about this a little bit in our small group, but I already had this in the sermon, Oza, so I don't see him. But, but, but here's the point. I want you to see something. There's a lot of people who will take Job and they'll say, well, the key to Job is, is that Job feared. And so then God brought hard things on him, and now that he saw God, he doesn't fear anymore. Job didn't do anything. God is the one who declared Job righteous, right standing. God is the one who said he's a good person. And then all this bad stuff happens to him. That's not fair. And can I tell you something? Job comes perilously close to saying exactly what Satan said he would do. He doesn't actually curse God to his face, but he does everything but that. He curses the day that he was born. He says that God is not fair. He says that this is horrible. His friends come along and say, you know, you must have done something wrong. This kind of, you know, you don't lose your whole family. You don't lose all your money, and you don't lose your health if you didn't do something wrong. And Job is saying, I didn't do anything wrong. And guess what? That's what God says, too. I didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. That's not why it happened. It happened because of this. See it? And so here's what happens. Job curses, like I say, the day he was born. He thinks that God is not fair. He says all kinds of tough stuff. That's pretty much exactly what Satan said that he would do. But then, now this is key for us today. But then Job sees God anew. Because God finally gets sick of everybody talking, and he shows up after one guy shows up and says, who are you, Job? <laughs> who are you to be questioning God? And God thinks that's the right note to chime in on. And so he comes in, and he says, hey, Job, since you're asking me all these questions and impugning my integrity and my righteousness and my mercy, since you're doing all this stuff, surely you understand everything that's happening. But you know, I remember on the day that I made the heavens and the earth, I remember that there was a nice little crowd of beings there. I don't remember your face in that crowd. But surely you would not accuse me of what you're accusing me of if you didn't know, if you weren't there for that, because, I mean, you have to know that in order to know, right? And surely, you know, you know enough to know, like you play with the life in, in the ocean, right? You play with these creatures of the deep. Right? Like I do. Because surely you wouldn't have this accusation against me. I mean, you could raise an accusation against me because you must know everything I know. <laughs> right? And so you're right that it's unfair. But wait, you didn't play with the Leviathan, huh? Well, then how can you question me? And finally, after getting done with a long list of this and then doing a second version of it, Job says this. You ask, who is this who questions my wisdom with such ignorance? God had asked Job that question. It's me. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, far too wonderful, things far too wonderful. You said, listen and I'll speak. I have some questions for you and you must ask them because he'd been asking God questions. And he said, now you answer my questions, Job. I'd only heard about you before, but now that I see you with my own eyes, I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Watch the principle here. Once Job saw who God actually was, it changed his entire understanding of everything that was happening. But watch something. God never tells Job, hey, there's a bet with Satan going on. He never tells him what's happening. The only thing he does is show him who he is. And Job says, here's the point. 
I was thinking I was the center of the universe, which is where we are when we move into sin. C.S. Lewis quote, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. It just flashed in my mind. C.S. Lewis quote, and it goes something like this. If anybody knows C.S. Lewis well enough to say it out, do. But he says, hell starts in our hearts when we are aggrieved and feel that we have the right to be aggrieved. And so we begin to do things for ourselves until finally we're completely separated from him. Now, I didn't say that right because C.S. Lewis says it better than I ever could, but that was the gist of it. And isn't that great? It's exactly right. When you're aggrieved, you have an issue against God, he wronged you. So I'm right to protect myself. Well, this is what Job is showing us, is that's this nonsense. God is doing things which Job never finds out about until after he's dead. You see it? See, he's, God's teaching us about ourselves. And, and it's not just way back then. We're supposed to learn from all of this. But we're still doing it. <laughs> we still do this, don't we? All the time, we have an issue. God, didn't, God wasn't fair there. So, whatever... And that's bad. Now, what's really happening is he's established relationship, and what he's saying is the question that's being asked at this point in time. See, we've been on our own, and now we have a relationship. And, the, and the, the question here that's being asked is, is, are his plans and promises enough for you? Is God's plan for you better than yours? Is it or not? See? Now watch what happens. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the land through a famine. I'm going to save them through the Joseph story, cool story, blah, blah, blah. Now, up in Canaan, they come down to the land. Now, you see what that land is? This is an actual satellite photo of now. And you see all the desert, but then you see all that green? That green is the Delta Nile, or the Nile Delta, right? But the point is, is that's where all the topsoil that runs off and all the water and everything is. And so that is an incredibly fertile place. In fact... Egypt is the most powerful country in the world right now, in large part because of that Delta Nile is pumping out so many grains and goods and so on that they can trade with other people. So they're kind of like the world's breadbasket. See it? And guess who gets the prime spot in that place? Because of Joseph, who's the number two. They get Goshen, which is right about where that red line comes to. So they get the most prime spot in all the Delta Nile. To raise crops and prosper. And they do. They raise crops and prosper. But what land was it that God gave to them? What was God's plan for them? Let me ask it this way. How long should they have stayed? The answer. Until the famine ended. Right? And then they should have gone home. Now God did say you're going to stay there 400 years because he knew what we would do. But the fact is, is that we should have been down there and we should have said, even though this is a really nice place, even though in comparison that stuff up in Canaan is kind of like not so cool, there's a little bit of grass. In fact, it's green right now in that satellite picture. You know why? It's mostly green up there. It wouldn't be green back in that day. The reason why is because Israel has done such a magnificent job of watering. Back when the Palestinians had it, they were not watering it. It was not a green place. It was a rocky, high, deserty, not a very, not a very... One of the reasons why we gave Israel to it, not just because God said it, but one of the reasons why the UN did it is because it was kind of a land that not very many people wanted. And then the Israelites came in there and they watered it and made it green and prospered it and did all this kind of stuff. They planted tons and tons of trees. I have a hundred trees planted in my honor based on something I did a long time ago. But in one of these forests that they have built in order to create an ecosystem that would make water and vegetation and all this stuff live, see? So what you got is, is you got, what they should have done is they should have been there long enough to get through the famine, and then they should have gone home. But they do the same thing we do, which is what? If you've got a choice between really green, good stuff, and then high, rocky soil, which one do you take? I mean, we are. This is what we do. <laughs> right? This is Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot says, Lot and Abraham, they have to split up their things. Well, what do you want? Do you want the green stuff down there in the valley? Or do you want the high rocky soil? Uh, green. <laughs> right? That's how we are. Chooses green. Ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. Other people like the green too. 
Nobody wanted the hierarchy. Abraham was pretty much fine. Same thing with the Jews here. A velvet handcuff. They went there because they were in favor, and 400 years later, they were slaves. They were in bondage to the thing that looked so good. Anybody ever had that happen in your life? Something looked really good, so you tried it, and then all of a sudden, one day, you went, what the heck happened here? How did I get in bondage to this thing that I meant to just do for fun? Or because it seemed pleasurable? See it? This is our story. God's working it out in us all the time, right now, even as Christians. So what God does is he says, all right, you know, I got I to, okay, do you all see now? You're not going to get there on your own. You're not going to get there in relationship. So now let's go to the next level. So he says, let's come on out. By the way, this is the proper map for getting out of Egypt with the, uh, with the thing. You see him going across the Red Sea up here. You see that spot? That's the Red Sea. And there's a little isthmus that goes out. And the Israelites were trapped in that isthmus when the Egyptians were coming. Now, if you watch the movie Exodus, or if you look online and you look at a lot, most people will not have them going through it. They'll have them going through that little river that goes up there, or maybe that little lake, or even as far up as that sea up there. And they call it the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, and it's just stupid. Okay? You know, I mean, as they say, you know, well, well, if God delivered them through the Reed Sea, then what a miracle God did to drown all those Egyptians in two feet of water. You know? It's just stupid. So th it's hard to find. Literally, it's hard to find a map that has the right route. That's the right route. So the point is he delivers them there. He goes down. By the way, don't go see the movie Exodus. Okay, just, you know, when they actually make a movie that is Christian, spend, go to it 22 times and give them lots of money for that so that they'll make more of that and they'll quit putting these people that don't know anything about the Bible. They take an 80-year-old most humble man in the world and turn him into a 39-year-old Braveheart. And that's the story of Exodus now on the screens to see, and people are getting, a to they're getting an understanding of God that is completely skewed from the truth. It is not good. Now, I'm not saying you can't go see the movie Exodus, okay? But, you know, it's just, don't put your faith in Hollywood, okay? I'm glad I'm out. So you come back down here to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God shows up, and what he says is, is here. I'm going to give you the rules, okay? By the way, if anybody sees me go to Exodus, I'm not planning on going, but... Would you, just, you know, I just decided to see the CG, okay? I hear it's really good, okay? <laughs> but don't, don't go, oh my gosh, what a hypocrite, okay? I am, but all right, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I'm not planning on it, but I may get really bored. Okay. <laughs> I wish my principles actually counted for a little bit more. All right. Uh, so you come, you come across, the, you go down to Mount Sinai here, and here's what God's doing. See, when we're not living up to something, here's what we say. Here's what our impulse is. You know that whole thing about you kind of hanging out there with Abraham? You know, that just wasn't working for me. Would you just do us this favor, God? This is what we say. This is how we feel, even now as Christians. Give us the rules. Give me the rules to Christianity. Right? Tell me what I can do and what I can't do. And then I'll not do those things, and I will do those things. And then I can go and do the other stuff that I want to do, too. See it? That's what rules are. Rules are a way to try and box in so that you get all that stuff right, and then you get to do anything else you want to do. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for intimacy. He's looking for, he's got more glorious, more glorious things than you've ever imagined, that flood. And he's trying to bring you into that. So what happens when we go off to the rules is we're saying, just give us rules. Now, in the first five books of the Bible, particularly the three books that we're in, one of which we're in right now in soap, you see a whole lot of rules about stuff. But do you understand something? As far as we go, all of us, there's only ten commandments, which is literally ten words, which is ten simple little rules, six of which there's nobody on the face of the earth that doesn't agree with. Don't kill people, don't murder, don't steal from them. Right? Stuff like that. Right? Everybody agrees. Those are bad things. The first four, if you don't know God, that's keep him holy and don't profane his name and so on. For some people can disagree with that or not because if they don't know God, they don't think those are important. But if you do know God, even somebody who doesn't know God could look at the first four and say, well, if there is a God, yeah, don't do that stuff. Right? So these are very easy to understand. This is really easy stuff. All the rest of the language and the rules and stuff is for this, the priests. Because what he's saying is, is he's saying, where the people are and where I am is much further apart than what people think. 
And I need the priests to be the ones that understand that so that they don't inadvertently end up in my presence and get killed by my holiness. So I want you to be cleansed. I want you to take it seriously. And here's the regulations that will help you stop and slow down and realize the sin in your own life and cleanse it so that you might actually come into my presence. See that? That's what all those other regs are about. So even right there, you see, he's showing us who he is and who we are. But nonetheless, here's the point. For all those years, we have, he's, we, uh, Abraham faith, sorry. We have the rules, the rules, perhaps we can obey just those simple little rules, and what's the result? All sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Everybody sinned, separated themselves from what God was trying to bring us into. Everybody. I hope that makes you feel bad about that. <laughs> I hope it, re you know, what we think is we sin and so God's mad at us. Do you understand now looking at that why God's disappointed? He's not disappointed because you sinned. He's disappointed because of what you lost in sinning. You chose the lesser pleasure and you lost the greater one. That's where he grieves. I had so much more for you than what you chose on your own. Do you see it? So what happens is, is we go to the judges. I like the judges. I love the judges because here's what the judges is. This is how I, I really do think this way. I mean, I really think this way. I think God is way too slow with me. When I do something bad, he ought to slap me down right then. Because if he slapped me down right then, I'd get better at not doing that, I think. <laughs> Turns out I've been slapped down a lot, and I never got better at it. But, you know, I still like to think that if he did something bad to me right away, I did something bad, he did, you know, I drop one shoe, he drops the other shoe, okay, now we're clean. Right? And by the way, if I do something good, give me a reward right now. Forget this sort of delayed gratification nonsense. You know what I mean? If I do something good, reward me. Right? I give a tithe check. I should go home and have a, a big check in my mailbox, shouldn't I? Right? And then I'd give more, won't I? And then you'll have more. God, this is working out really well. You see it? This is how we think. But here's what God's revealing. Enormous patience. Enormous hesitancy in his mercy and love to judgment. Slow to judge. What is his name when he reveals it to Moses? Slow to anger. <laughs> right? So here's what happens. Anointed leader in Judges, what we're doing is like this. See, we go up and we're, we're being prospered. And you know how it is with prosperity. You're kind of letting it relax and you relax and you kind of do a few things. And it's not that big of a deal. God doesn't care that much. And, and now I can kind of, I'm still worshiping him. But then you go and all of a sudden you start getting a little far from And then all of a sudden you're going, oh my gosh, how did I end up in this bondage? And oh God, help me, I'm in this bondage. And then God sends a deliverer and then you get delivered. And then you get back up and you go, oh, thank God. And now I'm at the top again. And then you start to relax again. And you would think after two or three of these cycles, that you'd start understanding, hey, when it gets good, don't get bad. When it, get good, when it gets good, stop doing that stuff that I keep doing that gets it all bad, right? You would think we would learn that, wouldn't you? Seriously, in two or three of these cycles, God could have done it, but how many judges are there? How many deliverers are there in Egypt, or, I mean in Israel, right? It goes on and on and on. We just keep doing it over and over and over. And the end result of it is, as it says at the end of the book, in these days everyone did what he wanted. <laughs> Their own way. They weren't learning from this, and we think we will learn from that, and we don't learn from that. Jeff asked me that question when I was talking a few weeks ago about, you know, if you'd have known this was going to happen, would you have been able to stop it? And my answer was, I hope so. But I'm not sure. Because I'm starting to learn about myself things that I'm not so happy about. The degree to which I'm in bondage to myself. The degree to which even though I've been made new, I don't live in the truth and the fullness and the trust of that newness. 
In fact, what it says right here is it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did, because here's what they're doing. They come to Samuel, and they say, look, you're, you're old now. You were a he was a judge, and your sons are not like you. In other words, it's not going to be good after you leave. So give us a king to judge us like all that other nations have. And this is the most tragic part of the story in the Old Testament. This is it. Why is it tragic? Who's supposed to be their king? God. The guy with the flood stuff. Who can bless. Who isn't selfish. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And God tells him, well, I'll give you king if that's what you want. See, who's the driver here? Yeah, God is taking him into a new phase every time, but who's the driver here? We are. Our choices. Give us a king. You know why? Because kings will make you do the right thing. And God says, you're right about that making to do stuff. Because <laughs> what he'll do is he'll take your sons for his slaves, and he'll take your, your daughters for his concubines, and he'll take your land for his own. Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and you're going to see this trying to have somebody else make you do the right thing, it doesn't work. Which is why we don't have a priesthood like we did back then in the old. Which is why we're all priests. Which is why we all have an intimate relationship with a God who's got us on our old Old Testament journey in order to free us fully and truly. And if you are relying and leaning on somebody else to do that, you will not learn what you need to learn. It needs to be between you and God. Not to say the community can't help you. The community helps you immensely, and they'll help you raise your arms and get through tough times, right? But in the end, it's between you and God. So we don't learn from judges, and we do get kings. We want to lead like the other nation, and what we end up doing is suffering. And then we get to the last one that we're doing today, and that is prophets. Now look what a prophet is. A prophet may live amongst the people, but he's clearly not of them, is he? So he's not, he's sort of geographically close, but it's almost as if this, here's the, here's the crowd of people, and the prophet stands outside the crowd, and he says, oh, don't do that. You can preach, whenever you look at the prophets, you can read them. See, what we're talking about is understanding God properly. You can read the prophets, and here's how you can read them. If you do this, I'm going to do this. Right? But you know how an email can get sent and everybody doesn't understand the spirit of it so it gets all wacky? You know the written communication, 85% of communication is nonverbal, and you can't do that in an email. You can't like do little emoticons of you going, well, you can do smiley faces. I do a lot of them for that to tell people I'm, I'm happy here. I'm not mad. Don't misunderstand. Okay? But you catch the drift, and, and what, he's, what we're trying to do is, he's, what he's trying to do is, he's, he's not saying, if you do this, I'm going to do that in an angry, bony-fingered, pounding on the pulpit way. What he's doing is he's saying, if you do this, do you know that this is going to happen? This is going to happen if you do this. So don't do that. And then they do it, and then it happens. And then you would think the next time that he said, don't do it, and he referred to the last time that he said, don't do it, and it happened, that you would not do it because it happened the last time. Wouldn't you? I mean, we are the densest thing ever. We think a black hole is dense. They, they got nothing on us. Okay? God is the one who says, how many years does this go on? Hundreds of years where God says, look at all the times that I told you what was going to happen and then it happened. And now I'm telling you it's going to happen again because of what you're doing. So please stop. <laughs> and we say, nah. We'll go our own way. Is this amazing? Is this is an amazing story? I mean, this is, a, this is a blow away. I want you to see all of a sudden, I want you to see the New Testament new now. Okay? I want you to see it through new eyes. This is not a God who's driving. This is us. We tried to do it on our own. We, he tried to do a relationship, but where we can still, and we didn't do it. We tried to do the, the rules, didn't work. The judges, the good and bad, and reward and all, didn't work. The, the, having somebody try and make us do it didn't work. God telling us what was going to happen if you did that, and then it happening didn't work. Can tell me another way that God could have let us try to get back to him, to be on our own and get back to him. Tell me another way. Because that's every one of them. Do you see it? Here's what we're learning from this. Two things. Two critical things. We are thick. <laughs> we are in trouble. 
I don't know why I went to that slide. Did it just go to that automatically? Would I jump around here too much? And, okay, I just want you to see that. Two things. One, we really are much bigger sinners than we have any idea about. And can I make something clear? I just walked you through that whole journey that God took humankind through. And we did it as Christians and realized ourselves, recognized ourselves in their story, didn't we? As Christians. Not just before we got saved, now. We recognize that these same impulses are still at play in us. He has delivery. He has things that he's doing. But he, you need to understand something. Here's what God's actually saying to him. He's not pointing out you're such a schmuck. That's not his point. What he's saying is you need help. I want you to see on your own what happens. Because what happens is not good. Not what you want. Not what your own heart knows and desires. You just don't get there on your own. You will not get back to me on your own. Won't happen. See it? He's just trying to make us understand ourselves. And he's not doing this to point out to us how horrible we are. He's doing it because he's saying you need something new. Next week we're going to go into it in so much detail about what he has done in us to make us new. And this is the Christmas gift. Right? But what I want you to see right now is I want us to take just this element. And I want us to apply it to our lives. And I'm going to apply it to something that I did and I talked to you about just a little bit ago. And I'm just going to take a few more minutes here. But, but four weeks ago, I, was it four weeks? I think it was four weeks ago when Eric preached. I guess it was three weeks ago. And I told you that I was in trouble. And I don't mean in trouble from God. I mean, I told you that God had revealed to me my disobedience since I was young. And, that, and again, I want to tell you, he's revealed a lot more disobedience to me. And that's not condemning me. It's just showing me my need for a savior, for a deliverer, for another plan than all the stuff I can come up with. He needs to do it, not me. But the point is, is that I told you that I had been disobeying God for years about this work thing. And I told you that I got into a place that was so bad that for the first time in my entire life, God told me that I wasn't going to preach a sermon. And the sermon that I wanted to preach, he gave to Eric Lee, who then preached it and knocked it out of the park. And praise God for a family that functions like a family to where God can take a message and the body can realize it and bring it and get what God wanted to say no matter who the messenger was, right? Praise God for that. But on a personal level, understand, I had no idea that my disobedience would lead to me being disqualified from the pulpit. That's hard. And I could have handled that one of two ways. God, you're being so mean. You know I have to work hard. You don't want me to work so hard? Reduce my workload. You're the one that's got 130 things that are necessary to do for me to do in the next 24 hours. It's not me. See, I could have blamed him. I could have had ought with him. I could have argued with him. I could have felt like he was being mean. I could have felt like you're taking me out of the pulpit. How rude of you. How un inappropriate of you. How unfair of you. You see what I'm saying? I could have thought of him as, a, as an angry, mean, getting after me God. But when I spoke it that day, I did something, and I said it that day. I said, I want you to know something. I do not feel judged by God. I do not feel like he did this because he's mad at me. I feel like he did this because he loves me. And he knows that I'm in a tough place. He knows that my devotionals are dropping and my Sabbaths are dropping. And that I'm getting into a place that is not good. And in love, he's removing me to heal me. Now it's been, what is it, three, four weeks. I told you that day another thing. I told you that I have a hundred and, I have, I have, I have about, this is, I wish I could show you this because the visual of it is so much better than I can tell it. But I have about 220 to 30 things at any one time on my to-do list. Now, I understand you can't have 200 things on your to-do list. And you, you say, well, you've got to get rid of some stuff. I get rid of stuff all the time. There's a hundred of them that are below the line 
that are things that, boy, you know, if God really blessed me and stuff ever, I, I would love to do these things, and I don't want to forget them. I'm old enough now to where they'll go away, and I'll never think about them again. And they're things that I'd like to do for various reasons. But I don't worry about the hundred that are below wine. They don't freak me out. They don't stress me out. They don't do anything. They're just there. And if one day I get to them, okay. But then there's this line, and above that line are things like a marriage going to pot, uh, some situation at the church that needs fixed, and I'm supposed to be part of it. Uh, I do want to say something. People will say, well, you need to delegate. There's about 110 to 130 things at any one time above the line. And people will say, you need to delegate. I want to say something real clearly. If I had a secretary, I could delegate about 30% of it, about 30% of the work that I do. I could, in fact, give to somebody who was an assistant. Uh, you can't call them secretaries anymore. Sorry about that. But you call them assistants, right? And, and the point is, is if I had somebody there, and I did at one point in time, Chantel Hatch, who was magnificent and made my life better. And she was amazing at how much I could offload to her. But, you know, we run lean here as a church, and I'm not the only one that needs help, and our pastors don't have that. And so why should I get it if other people don't? And so we don't, and so I do that. But let's do make it clear. If you take 30% off of 130, who's the good math person? What do you end up with? Still 70, 80? Yeah, it's still 70 or 80 items, right? And if I get four or five done in a day, I feel like I've had a phenomenal day. So it's still way more than I'm ever going to do. And people say, well, you just can't do it, so just don't do it. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. How many people, don't show your hands, because that just, that'll just wreck me. How many people have received a call from me three days after you asked, and it was something that you needed to call back now? It happens all the time. I just, I do everything I can do. I do it as best I can, and I trust God, and you know what I mean? And thankfully, I do get a lot of them returned ultimately, but I'm late. You know what I mean? I don't get to get the, to be there, and, and, and I do want to say I let God take care of it, and that's trusting God, right? And I just say I can't, so thank you, God, and you see what I'm saying? But, but you understand, and I'm not, I'm not making any excuses. I want you to see something, because this is something I said at that moment. I said, you could look at those 80 things that I have that are left that are critical that I'm the one that should be working on. And even if we had more staff members, sure, maybe I could delegate some of those. It'd still be more than I could do. Do we get the point that I'm trying to make? It'd still be more than I could do. That would, that would, you know, in a very real way rest with me that I feel like I'm supposed to do. Anyway. And I could look at that and I could say, the reason why I have to work hard is because I have so many things on my plate. But I told you something that day, as I said, that's not how I actually see life in the world. I don't see it that way. What I think is, is that I've been disobedient to God. And in the disobedience, it's gotten up to 50, 60, 70, 80, 110, 130. What I said that morning is I said, if I'll just obey God, I believe that he'll bring that to-do list down to 30, which is a manageable number. I didn't say 30, but... I sit down to a manageable amount because if I believe if I'm obeying God, he will keep my to-do list at a level to which I can do. Why? Because the word tells me this. It says that if I seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, what's righteousness? It doesn't mean, we think it was meaning if I never sin, then everything will work out for me. Here's what it actually means. If I'll stand with God, if I'll stand right with him, if I'll be standing in his presence, if I sin, if I'll come and repent, if I'm doing right, if I'm giving him the glory. See what I mean? Whatever I'm doing, if I'm standing right with him, if I'm pressed in to hold on to him, if I'm doing that, then he promises me all these things will be provided. Financially, workload, emotional, other needs, everything will be provided if I'll seek him first. Now, I want to tell you, I said that in front of everybody. I want to tell you that in two days, as I went out and walked, my to-do list went from 80 down to 30. And it wasn't because I did the other 50. I'm just telling you, this is how God works. Uh, can I, I'm going to use an analogy. It's like tithing. People, there's two ways of looking at tithing. One is, I have a certain amount of income. I have a certain amount of outgo, one of which is my tithe. And that's how life works. And I really do understand that. I may, you may think I'm so stupid I don't get that. I really do understand that. Here's what the problem is. When you're talking to me, you've got somebody who had no income for 10 years and God provided for a growing family of two and put me through two different master's programs. For 10 years, I had a year, a year and a half to two years of any income at all, and he provided for me for 10 years. 
in, in so many different ways that you could not look and say, well, you had a benefactor, you had a rich family, or you had this or that. It wasn't that. It was God providing for me in the most amazing ways that you could ever imagine. And when I look at finances, I don't look at them as, uh, uh, no, no offense to FPU, get, do FPU, good. But I don't look at it as a certain amount of income and a certain amount of outgo. What I look at it is, is am I following God? Because when I'm following God, he promises me that when I seek him first and when I'm standing right with him, that he provides for me. And I have watched person after person for a year. You've heard people stand up here and give first fruits testimony and talk about it. I'm looking at several people that I've heard your stories this year. As you heard first fruits testimony, you did it. And what you discovered was he does it. <laughs> Promotions, all kinds of stuff. I, I, I wish I could tell the story right now that I want to tell, but I'm not going to do that to you, so but I just saw somebody in the audience, and you, they got the most amazing story on this exact point, came to me and said, we don't have the money, period. And I said, I don't know what to tell you except seek him and stand with him and do what he says and watch what he does. It's unbelievable who God is. We do not believe it. <laughs> we do not believe it. We do not trust it. We do not know who he actually is. And what he's actually doing and how this actually works. We do not know it. That's just the truth. It's such a different thing when we're right with him. When our orientation and our perspective is to get right with him and stand right with him and stand with him. And be after whatever he's telling you. You know, you know I'll give you just, I'll give you how fine-tuned this is. On, I've, I've been operating it right about a very manageable to-do list. I've cut my schedule back in the last weeks since that happened. I've cut my schedule back about 40%. Now, let's be clear. I'm still at about 60 hours. I don't take two days. I take one day a Sabbath, and that's, that's six days at about 10 hours. So I'm about 60 hours. But I, can I tell you, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. At that level, I'm feeling like, oh, my God, I don't even know. What to, I'm twiddling my fingers going, what do I do next? You know what I mean? Now, on Friday... At about 4.30, I had something going on that evening. About 4.30, God said, stop working. And there was only a couple left. <laughs> right? I'm doing so good. It's so nice to have a small list. And then there was a couple things I could do kind of easily. And I just said, I can do those two or three things. Now, this is the truth. I did those two or three things. And by the time I had to shut my computer down, I was completely stressed out. And I had six more than the three I started with. I got those three done. And in that period of time, six more things came. <laughs> I was trying to get it to where I didn't have much to do on Saturday so I could kind of relax. <laughs> you see it? Do we? Do we believe it? Do we believe that the lesson of that whole Old Testament is not mean, angry God, but it's thick-headed us? An incredibly patient and loving God who's letting us experience the things that we choose to our own harm so that we'll quit choosing them more accurately so that we'll start choosing him who is the solution, the savior, right? Do we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Do we know that that's the answer to all of that? The top line is how we work it out. The bottom line is how he works it out. Tell me one of us that could have come up with that on our own. Christianity is the dumbest religion on the face of the earth. It makes no sense. The God that created you came and died at your own hands? That's stupid. You don't come up with a religion like that in your own head. And yet, that terrible thing that we did, think of what's worse than that. You all have done bad things, right? Don't tell me. No hands. We're not doing testimonies today. Okay? Everybody in here has done bad things, right? Even people that don't know him that are here today, you think of it and you just think about it. There's something that you chose and you know that you chose something and you knew that it wasn't the better thing. It wasn't really the best thing, but you still chose it. We all do this. And the worst thing that we could have ever done was is for the creators, the creations, to kill the creator. 
And that's what we did. And here's what God did with that. God caused everything to work together for good for those who will just receive that he is a good God doing good things. See, you can not receive that. Even as a Christian, you can say, you're an okay God doing marginal things and I've got to protect my butt because of that. Or you can realize that he's a good God who's always doing good things. Always doing good. Always doing. Always doing. Never, ever, ever, ever not doing great things. Righteous, holy, wondrous. Always. Now, everybody in here has at least one or two hard things that you go, I don't know about that one. You know what? We're going to give you a moment here to get that right with God. Because He is the God who causes everything to work together, including the fact that the creation should kill the Creator. Because the amazing thing about Christianity is, is as the creation killed the Creator, that was the way that we get to go back to Him. That we get the garden again. That we get better than the garden. We get eternity in Him. This is where I wanted that flood video to go, you guys. Actually, go back to it. Just push on that flood video, would you? And I'm going to have you pop all the way back down again. But this is, this is the thing that I want you to see. I want us to experience this today. I want us to quit experiencing desert and dry little streams. I want us to quit experiencing even nice rivers that we might have in our lives because of God's river of living water that's been flowing through your life. I want you to start experiencing a flood. I want you to start experiencing the fullness and the glory, the wonder and the majesty. I want you to start experiencing the fullness that God has for us. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm asking you to close your eyes and I'm asking you to take everything. The things that happened to you that you thought that God was mad at you about. The things where you continually choose to do something that you think has corroded your relationship with him. You think that it's made you somehow kind of second best at the very best. Right? Like you get to be in heaven, but you don't get to be in the inner circle. Because surely you didn't live up to it because of all the things that you had done. I want you to take right now and start letting the Holy Spirit start bringing to your mind the things that you've done that you think have corroded your relationship with Christ. And I want you to see that he is taking that thing and he has turned it to glory. Here's the truth about God. He takes the mistakes that you make and he makes something come of it that is better than could have happened if you never made the mistake. He takes the mistakes and he glorifies them. Just like in the Old Testament, he's teaching us, he's leading us. I want you to start seeing God not mad at you at all, but loving you patiently, mercifully, holding you in the whole of your life and bringing you forward lovingly and graciously, patiently, crazy about you. You haven't disqualified yourself. He's taking that thing and turning you into something magnificent because of it. That's the God that we serve. Take this moment with the Holy Spirit, would you? ask him ask him to reveal to you places where you have gotten a perverted understanding of God where you've lessened his goodness and power resurrection power where you've decreased it and you're not experiencing love his flood his goodness towards you God, minister to his people. Holy Spirit, fall and start speaking. Reveal to people these places. God, change us. Change our understanding of you. Just like with Job, open our eyes and let us see you. See you.
something that you actually carry out of here today because God spoke to you. Let this be the beginning of a conversation with him. Let this be the beginning of a journey. Let this be the beginning of a revelation. I want you to see something. I want you to see the God that really is. The Christmas gift that Jesus is. With your eyes open, I want you to see this. This is John speaking about the Jesus that he knew. He knew him so intimately that he laid his head on his chest in the Last Supper. But then he goes and sees who Jesus really is. See, he knew him one way. But then he sees him in Revelation in more fullness. And what's he do? He falls down as if dead. Why? Because of the sin that's in him. This is John. John doesn't sin. He's a copy loved, you know, good gospel guy. But he comes into God's presence and he realizes who he is and he falls as though dead in the presence of holiness. But what does Jesus do? Does he say, yeah? <laughs> you deserve it? <laughs> Here's what he does. His right hand goes down and pulls me up. His voice reassures me. This is why the angels say, suddenly the angel was joined by a host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. The ones who, by the way, are going to kill him. <laughs> and he's saying, I'm bringing you a new way. I'm bringing you a Savior. I'm bringing you something to rejoice about. I know the bondage that you're in, and I'm here to set you free. Not just at salvation, but every day after that too. Freer and freer and freer so that you're free indeed. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you with a hallelujah, with a thanksgiving, with a praise, with a oh. God, the majesty that you are. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, you are miraculous, magnificent, incredible. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. 